It's falling from the clouds A strange and lovely sound I hear it in the thunder and the rain It's ringing in the skies Like cannons in the night As the music of the universe plays We're singing You are holy Great and mighty The moon and the stars Declare who You are And I'm so unworthy But still You love me Forever my heart We'll sing of how great you are. Beautiful and free, beautiful and free, a song of galaxy, reaching far beyond the Milky Way. Let's join you with the sound. Come on, let's sing it out. As the music of the universe plays, we're singing, You are holy, great and mighty. The moon and the stars declare who you are. And I'm so unworthy, but still you love me forever, my heart. We'll sing of how. Carpenter's Way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. With this heart open wide from the depths, from the heights, I will bring a sacrifice. With these hands lifted high, hear my song, hear my cry, I will bring a sacrifice. I will bring a sacrifice. 
Good morning, Carpenter's Way. It is so good to see you in this hot season. Welcome, welcome. We've got the air conditioners up. Some of you are still warm, but if we put it up anymore or down anymore, others will freeze, so deal with it. Anyway, welcome. We're glad you're here. Would you take your, uh, take your worship guides, take your worship guides, open them up. I got some things to highlight. As you do, I want to welcome those of you who are here for the first time. We've got old friends back. Uh, Jim Walter, a friend of mine from my last ministry, drove his motorcycle down. That's how good the preaching is here. So all the way from Ohio, and uh, that's not the only reason he came, I found out. He's got kids in the area. But, but uh, anyway, it's good to see the Nashes back and Kyle Grimes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget, forget people, but it's like, it's like old home week, and we're really, really glad you're here. And, and uh, wherever you are, if God, God moves people around, you're always welcome to come back, and we'll hug your neck. And we're just glad to have those folks here and others. And if you're watching on the Internet, welcome. You're a part of our family, too. And our hope and our prayers, we sing songs of worship and get into God's Word. Uh, that you enjoy it with us. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25 today, so if you want to start turning there. I wrote on Facebook last night, Genesis 25, and uh, that's only because Wednesday night I'm doing Genesis and Sunday morning, and frankly, I don't start studying until about 10.30 on Sunday morning, so uh, <laughs> it's a joke lighting up. I, I know, I should just not do the comedy and just tell you what's going on. All right, so we have some announcements. Things coming up. I want to encourage you, if you have kid going to, Alicia's not in here, Preteen camp. That is going. That's uh, I believe two weeks from tomorrow or something like that. But if your kid is going after the service this morning at 11 o'clock, they're going to have a meeting in here. So you need to be a part of that. Give you information. Make sure all your forms are filled out, and uh, we have everything lined up. The reason we do these, and I, I just you'll understand this, is because security is a paramount and medical care and stuff like that. So we need you to fill those forms out. So if you have any questions about that, 11 o'clock. This morning, uh, in a, right here in the worship center, and y'all can meet right over there. Um, uh, also, our Amazon trip is coming up pretty close now, and so we're collecting things. There is a list in your worship guide as to things you may want to help us part or be able to participate in. And uh, Wednesday night, it's this Wednesday night. Jeff, is it this week? This Wednesday night is uh, another late night event. Dubstep dodgeball. They, uh, we will turn this room, or they will turn this room into a nightmare and it will be the kind of nightmare teenagers love so uh, please uh, if you have a teen it, great information in there about that you can ask uh, Mark Dubos or Jeff Bonin about that or any of the staff um, I think that pretty much does it for what I want to announce this morning so take some time to read through your worship guys we've got Bible studies going on right now women's Bible studies midweek studies things that you need to be aware of uh, our students just got back from camp uh, they were there all week, and I know many of you prayed, and we thank you for your prayers uh, as God works in the hearts of our teenagers. Uh, busy time, had BBS two weeks ago. Continue to pray for the 21 kids who came to know the Lord. And uh, we've got a kid off at uh, working with Clear, Micah Bonin, so be praying for him. And we've got short-term mission trips. Uh, Guatemala's coming up and other events and activities, so we want to remember all those things in prayers as well. So I'm going to ask our ushers at this time to come forward as we prepare for our offering. If you are visiting with us this morning, this is the one part of our service that really belongs to Carpenter's Way. We don't want you distracted by money. We're just awfully glad you're here this morning, and uh, we're, thanks for being here. Let's, uh, let's commit to the Lord the rest of our time. Father, we love you, and, and uh, we're glad that we can gather here in this very comfortable, air-conditioned place to 
get together and see our family and, and worship you. And Lord, we got a lot of folks who are on vacation right now and all over this country, and we pray you'd be with them and keep them safe. May they enjoy their time away. May you be a strong presence with them as they're away. Uh, Lord, I pray that they would experience your beauty in creation. And as they come in contact with people, Father, that they would uh, be enthralled with your creativity and how you've made folks. And may we be a people that draws people to our spiritual dad, our, our Heavenly Father, because of our love for them. And uh, Lord, as we open your word this morning and we get into 1 Samuel 25, I pray you would speak to us. Um, I, I thank you for the opportunities that, uh, that are abundant in this church for Bible studies and camps. And thank you for the safety we've had so far and, and how you're working the lives of children and students. Um, I just pray, Father, that you would continue that as we continue to be faithful. And Father, for the adults in this flock, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would be encouraged having been together. So now, Lord, we turn our face back to you. And we pray you'd bless those who give this morning. And we know you will provide for their needs as they trust you with their funds. And uh, we, we ask you, Lord, to meet with us in a very special way now. In Jesus' name, amen. The offering plate passes by, you guys. Feel free to stand and worship with us.
must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From heaven's throne, you came to us and set your heart upon the cross we'll never know the sacrifice you made for all our sin and all our shame you took the nails you took our place and no one else could do what you have done. So one name, one name is higher, and one name is stronger than any grave, than any throne. 
throne, Christ exalted over all. And from the grave where death would die, you rose again and brought us life. You're reigning now, the Savior of the Savior of the world, and what name is higher, what name is stronger than any grave, than any throne, Christ exalted over all, and the only
with the authority and the power and the glory that you are. And so God, I ask, Lord, as we sing this last song, that you'd make that real to us. God, that you would remind us, God, if nothing else, if we feel like you've let us down in the past, we feel like you've walked away, God, that you'd remind us, Lord, that we are here in this moment, God, that we stand righteous and secure because of what you've already done. God, whether or not we feel like you've let us down, whether or not you feel like you've taken your hand away from us, Lord, we know that we are saved. We know that we are called your kids. We know that we are, we are declared righteous because of what you have done. And we sing of that this morning. We remember what you did. We remember what's been done. By the God who was and is, by the God who's yet to come, and we remember how you say, we recall the lost were found, and you were present yesterday. You are moving even now, and we will not forget, Lord, you are faithful, you're not finished yet, there's more to come, and we'll keep pressing on, and this will be our song, we will not valleys we have walked, up the mountains we have climbed, over giants we have walked, all with Jesus by our side, so whatever comes our way. Today, oh, you are faithful to complain, and we will not forget, Lord. You are faithful, you're not finished yet. There's more to come, and we'll keep pressing on, and this will be our song.
not finished yet. There's more to come. We'll keep pressing on and this will be our song. We will not forget, Lord, you are faithful. You're not finished yet. There's more to come. And we'll keep pressing on and this will be our song. We will not forget. song will never quite be the same since Easter with uh, the sketch and especially in our study of 1 Samuel. If you take your Bibles and turn there, as you turn there, uh, as I studied this week, I was thinking about an expression that Paul made in Romans chapter 7. He wrote this, I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. I've discovered this principle of my life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable man that I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? For some of us, uh, we can relate to that. Actually, for all of us who are honest, we can relate to that. Maybe you've woken up the morning after you posted something on Facebook, which seems to be a disease right now, and wondered why you posted that. Or uh, you said someone something to someone or to your spouse, and as it's coming out of your mouth, you realize that what's about to happen in 30 seconds is not going to be good. Or maybe you're one of those preachers that went to India and was preaching and said, holy cow, on a few occasions. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I mean, the, the fact is that we're not perfect people and we do silly things. And even though sir, uh, that wasn't a sin, it was unwise and it just kind of slips out there, you know. There are no perfect people, not even the one guy in history that God said, this is what it looks like to seek after my heart. He was human. And David in 1 Samuel 25 has a moment 
where he looks all too human. I want to pray together, and I want to ask that God really bring this home to us this morning. Uh, Father, I, I want to ask now that you would take your word and you would make it relevant to where we live in 2018. I thank you for those that are watching on the Internet. I thank you for those in this room who come here every week, and I thank you for those who are visiting. And it is our prayer, Father, not to grow our local church, but to grow the body of Christ. So grow us up, Father. Grow us up. And if there's somebody here or watching who does not know you, may today be the day of salvation. And for those of us who do, may today be an honest moment with ourselves where we find peace and hope in the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel 25, 1, the very beginning of this verse says this, Now Samuel died, and all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. And that's it. That's all it says about Samuel's death. Samuel was the last of the official judges of the Hebrew nation. He was the one that God had raised up to, to take over when Eli's wicked boys failed. Samuel was the one that God used to anoint Israel's first king, Saul, and then confront him in his regular sinfulness. And then he was the one that God asked to tell Saul that his time of authority was over. Samuel was the one that God would use to raise up his second king for the nation, David. He was also David's confidant and counselor while he was running for his life from King Saul who was trying to kill him. But in light of this hugely impactful life, it is crazy to think that this brief one-verse sentence is all we have of his death. It tells us that Israel gathered to mourn him, and then rather than reviewing his glorious life, it simply says that he was buried in the garden behind his house. I'm exaggerating that a little. But he's buried back in his home. He's not taken to a, a, a temple somewhere, and there's nothing built up and around him. He simply is taken home where he's buried. To be fair, though, Saul didn't like him much until he wanted to use him. And we will find in coming weeks that Saul even conjures him up after his death. And that will be a text I preach to very quickly because I don't have a lot of answers on that. But he will call to Samuel to come back and talk to him as a ghost. I mean, Saul used everyone, especially this prophet. An Old Testament prophet uh, wasn't an easy job. It's funny today to hear people talk about wanting to be a prophet or using the gift of prophecy because it was not something that they enjoyed because actually an Old Testament prophet is what we could call a, a covenant enforcer. They were a police officer that policed the covenant obedience. And God would go to a prophet and tell that prophet in a dream or in a, in a voice that they needed to speak. They needed to go tell a king or the nation that they had turned against God. And as a result, as a result people didn't like them. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, not just because his messages were difficult, but because nobody wanted him around. Elijah was under the death threat by the king and queen. This was a difficult job to be a prophet. So maybe that's part of the reason that we don't have more of a celebration. But despite that, it says that all of the nation would gather at his funeral. Despite the bigness of this man's life, they gather for his funeral and they bury him at his house in Ramah. But when you think about it, I guess that's pretty much as it should be for a man or woman whose life is in servitude to their king. I guess that's, uh, that's probably right for them because the chosen servant of the Lord is just that, a chosen servant. And they are tasked with responsibilities that the master is responsible for. The servant isn't the master, and we sometimes forget that. 
The servant is not the master. Even with it, though our hearts wish to make him or her the one that we want to follow, the Jewish people struggle with this, even to this day. The Jewish people were always trying to find the next Moses, despite the fact that they didn't like Moses when he was their leader. If you recall, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament begins with a full-throated defense of Jesus being a greater high priest than Moses. Or on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John set up monuments, and they're going to worship they're going to worship Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, all three there. And it's intense because the father even speaks up and says, this one over here is my beloved son. You should listen to him. And, and it, you know, we preached through it a, a few years ago, but it's interesting because we look at that text as if he's just endorsing his son. He's actually separating him from the other two because the disciples there were beginning to worship all three. And the, and the father is saying, look, that one right there, he's the one you need to listen to. A little study and you will realize that Paul's uh, letter to the Galatian church where he is rebuking what he calls as the Judaizers, those that are trying to marry Christianity and Judaism, and he's rebuking them. Most people aren't aware that it is believed that those people were actually the disciples of John the Baptist. They were so busy worshiping John the Baptist that they missed Jesus. Everyone struggles with focusing on humans to lead us and to teach us about God rather than seeking a personal, intimate relationship with him ourselves. It takes work. To build a personal, intimate, real relationship with God takes time. And it takes a willingness to look at life and its experience in a new light in order to have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. You have to be willing to re-look at how you look at things, your worldview. So, instead of doing that, we try to find the easy route, a surrogate. Somebody that will tell us about the relationship they have with God and their experiences with God, which is fine to a degree, but when we put our hope in the messenger instead of the message or the one that the message is about, we end up discouraged when they fall because we've forgotten that they are not the master. They're the servant. So Samuel dies. And after his death, it tells us that David moved down to the wilderness of Maon. There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned a property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. Bottom line, he's rich, and it's harvest time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife was Abigail. She was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was a crude and mean in all his dealings. How would you like that to be immoralized forever in Scripture? When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with his message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it's sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and they will tell you that this is true. So would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. So let me tell you what's going on with all these niceties. This was a very common thing. One of the core values of all things Middle Eastern, and it isn't just, it isn't just Jewish, but it's also uh, Islamic or Arabic as well, 
But it is the idea of hospitality. It's one of the few tenets even of the, of the Muslim religion. And that is because predominantly that area of the earth is nomadic. People would travel from place to place. And it was expected that you wanted to be cared for while you were in process of traveling. If you have watched about the Middle East or seen any documentaries, they set up camp in lots of wild places. And when they do, they plan to stay for months or even years at times. So their tents aren't really tents. They're moving. They're, they're, they're homes that move. And it would take a lot of time. So if you were traveling through, it was customary for you and your people to be put up and fed by another group that had set up camp in a particular region. Um, David isn't just being nice here. He's actually engaging in a contract. I have cared for you. Now you need to care for me and my people. And he does it by way of requesting that. Who is this fellow David, he responded. Verse 10. Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does these, this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who want to run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and to give a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Uh, you might recall back a few chapters where David defeats the Philistines in a place called Keilah, the same people that he saves after he defeats the Philistines, he actually tells us that he takes some of their goats and some of their animals and, just, and gives them to the Hebrews and takes some for himself. It is reasonable to believe, because this is all that area still, it is reasonable to, be, to believe that Nabal was uh, actually received wealth from David in the past. David not only protected him, and I can't, I can't prove this, but this is all that same region. And David had fought for these guys. All he does is present that he had protected them. But it is reasonable to believe that he had, they had benefited from him. So when David's men return to David with the news and his response, David responds by saying, verse 13, get your swords. He, it was his reply, and he strapped his own sword on. Then 400 men started off with David, and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. To say that David is unhappy is an understatement. Now, again, just to put this in practical context, David is a man after God's own heart, but he's still a man. And we understand for weeks, if you've been with us in this study, that now for a long time, some believe as many as 15 years, David has been chased by Saul for nothing he's done. And he's tired. And up to this point, he's been faithful. He's been the model of trusting in God. And you could make the case here that he loses his mind here. He is really, really mad. And as he's strapping on his sword, he tells 400 of his men that they're going to go take revenge on this guy. Lesson number one. This is why you make sure that your love for Billy Graham or Beth Moore or even David is, David is, message, or is, is measured with a strong dose of reality. They are men and women of God, but still men and women. I want to say something about this text, and I, and I didn't want to spend too much time on it today. There'll be other opportunities. But as you look at people in our communities and cultures that politically you may not feel belong, there is a lesson in here about gracious hosting of people. Um, I'm going to talk in a little while about words that we say, but I want to go ahead and begin by saying this. 
that there's a lot of stupid talk going on on every side of the political aisle in this country right now. And it's becoming downright hateful. And some of it is coming from the church, from people who are the children of God. I want to remind you that your kingdom is not of this earth, that your real citizenship is in heaven. And while laws need to be understood and maintained, the truth is these are still people for whom God died. And we need to make sure that while we vote and are actively involved, that our hearts still long for people that are hurting. I'm not saying that families should or should not be separated, but I'm telling you that there are application when you see the heart of God in these kind of stories. There is a concept, there is a love that we need to make sure that we continue to have while we have political debate. Do you understand? I don't want anybody, okay, about four of you said yes. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. You can be on the political right and be a godly man or woman. You can be on the political left and short of abortion and some of the immorality that's being proclaimed, you can walk with God there too. You have to deal with those things though. But the truth is, the truth is that when it comes to individual people that we come in contact with, we are required by God to always be hospitable and show grace and love. And the purpose isn't because people need food, but it's because people need spiritual food. And if you have questions about that, I refer you back to the gospel where Jesus Christ spent time and actually had to send the disciples away so he could spend time with a Samaritan woman he as a rabbi had no business talking to. He had no business talking to her. It was out, it was, at best it was inappropriate, if not downright illegal, for a rabbi to be talking to a woman, let alone a, a Samaritan woman, let alone a woman who has had an immoral life. And Jesus broke all of those rules and had to send the disciples away because they were a distraction so he could minister to her. So I just want to say right now that we have a moment here to throw out, and I, I did not want a whole message on how we deal with, with people who are immigrants. That's, that's something, that's a whole different message, and I think it's distracting for the church. You need to vote. You need to be involved. Romans 14, you need to be convinced in your own heart of what's right for our country. And then you need to put it away and you need to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Do you understand? And there are times on both sides of the aisle that we need to just stop and remember that at the end of the day, what God is going to take care of is what matters. Can you all take a deep breath for a second and smile, please? I feel like you're staring at me. I want you to know that there is hope no matter what Donald Trump does. And there is hope no matter who the next president is. There is hope if the, uh, if the House goes to the Democrats. There's hope. Our hope has always been God. And the mistake David makes here, and I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, is David has trusted in God's protection and provision up to this point. But he's tired. He's beaten down. He's frustrated. And how dare this guy break a moral code that he should have, have been glad to, to feed him. He should have been glad. But he's at the end of himself, and he loses his head here, and he's about to kill this guy. By the way, I'll make this case a few minutes later, but because of what I'm saying right now, I want you to understand. Leviticus and Deuteronomy both forbid murdering somebody in this case. There are ways of handling it if there's Jews, but it is not murder. He would have murdered this guy if he goes through with this. Now you know where the story is going. He obviously doesn't succeed, but that's his plan. Lesson number one, follow God while enjoying his servants. Because we get stupid, and all God's people said, See, that wasn't very nice. That was the most energetic thing you've done in 10 minutes. All right, so we pick up the story in verse 14. Meanwhile, one of the bad guy, Nabal's servants, went to Abigail and told her, that Abigail is Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm for them. 
Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night they were like a, a wall of protection to us and our sheep. Verse 17. You need to know this and figure out what to do, referring to Abigail, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family, including him. He's so ill-tempered, and no one can even talk to him. This wise, unnamed whistleblower, we'll call him, makes a courageous decision to inform Nabal's wife, Abigail, about what has happened and what's about to happen if she doesn't intervene. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 fig leaves. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. Okay, the author is about to double down on what's going on in David's head, okay? He's been writing for a while now. How do I know that? Because the conversation has already gotten back to him. We know what David's about to do. And she had to gather all this stuff. So some time has passed. But while he's writing and while she rides up to him, listen to what he's mumbling to himself. A lot of good it did to help this fellow. I'm sorry, I just think this is funny because I've never done this. A lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and even kill me if one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Now, for an average pastor, I'm above the most, but for an average pastor, there have been times where most pastors feel like, I can only tell these people so much, and they are so stupid. What is wrong with them? I, I will never preach again to that group of people. I've never thought that but another pastor might. I, I, just, I just want you to take a deep breath and realize that this guy, that they've got a flag whose, whose star is on the flag, who they long for another king like David, who we revere even in the church today and often put in stained glass, you've got to take a breath. And before the first sin of David, the first mistake, this is giving you a clue into his heart, the first thing of David you see here is not that he's perfect. He's not perfect. If you've spent any time in the Psalms, Please understand that though the Psalms are the inspired and errant word of God, every emotion of David is not godly. It's just not godly. He prays in the Psalms that his enemy's children's head will be crushed by stones. That's not a godly emotion, but it is his emotion. And I, and I, I want to set you up for what's about to happen. The church somehow has decided that God's goal for our life is sinlessness. The reason Jesus died on the cross is because we'll never be sinless except by declaration. That's why he died on the cross. Past, present, and future sins are gone. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. The truth is that whether it's Paul or David, these guys struggled with their flesh just like you. Struggling with your flesh does not make you a second-rate citizen. Feeling sorry for yourself, feeling frustration, does not make you a second-tier citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And for whatever reason, out of all the stories of David's life, this one is recorded for us because he, God wants you to see what, the, what, a, what a practical life of a man who seeks God, God's heart looks like. And that will include Bathsheba. And that will include Uriah, the man David kills. And that includes this story. 
This is Scripture. It's in the inerrant Word of God, and it's in here so we can walk away going, wow, Abigail's pretty an amazing lady. But we don't look at that. We look at David, and some of us make excuses for his behavior. He's out of line here. Up to now, he wouldn't even stand against Saul. He felt guilty in last week's text for cutting off a little tassel from his prayer garment. And this week, he straps on his sword, tells 200 men, I want you to protect our women and children. 400, let's go kill this guy. That's what he's about to do. And Abigail gathers some stuff together to meet with him. It's important that we understand that our spiritual heroes are made up. They're not real. The effective man or woman of God isn't a giant spiritually. They are a man or woman who studies the scriptures and surrenders their heart to the Lord. When a pastor or an author or a godly man or woman falls in sin, it doesn't mean they were a fraud their whole life. It just means they lost their focus. Men and women that we revere spiritually, most of them we don't even know personally. And that's how you can revere them. Did you get that? The reason that you love Beth Moore isn't just that she writes really well or uh, Giglio isn't because he's a great speaker, which he is. Those are wonderful things. But it's because he didn't tell you off at dinner the other night when you didn't serve him enough iced tea. These are real people. They have real skin on, and they really, really struggle just like us. It's interesting. Uh, this is for the theologians in the room, the Bible students. At the end of the statement David makes, when he says it sounds like he's swearing to God that he'll kill this man because he's not going to end up killing him. Um, the Hebrew language does a better job laying that out. David is not actually swearing before God like Saul does when God removes him. David is actually promising, I will get this done. I'm going to take care. He's just so frustrated. But it isn't the same as a vow because if he vows to God and breaks it, God's going to have to take him out on it. So that's a side note. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, so remember she sees him in the ravine, She's got people all around her. She's got servants. She's got lots of food to feed them. When she sees David, she quickly gets off her donkey and bows low before him. I want you to visualize this because the author wants us to see exactly what happened. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all the blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. This does not give you the right to speak with your husband like this, ladies. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Wow. Remember what I told you at the beginning that the author of this, of this historical book likes to contrast and compare characters? That's what's going on here. The author is contrasting Abigail and Nabal and her husband. Understand, marriages back in this day were not romantic. Actually, until about 200 years ago, most marriages, like 98%, were, were set up by parents. And so marriages were arranged by, uh, by what is going to be best for the daughter, what is going to be best for the son. Can she give him ch children? Or for the woman, can he financially take care of her? Is this a business transaction we would like to take place? And love would take place often later. But her well-being, and whether this was a good man or not, had less to do with whether or not Abigail's mom and dad would put these two together, as it did, was he wealthy? And he was very, very wealthy. Uh, I refer you to Fiddler on the Roof if you want to understand that a little bit more. It is not a, it's the best next to Top Gun. It's the most theological movie you'll ever see in your life. 
It's just, it's just, that's just the way it is. And I'd like to throw out, since I brought the subject up, I'd like to throw out that I'm not sure that romance is working all that well in the last 200 years. We have more divorce rates than arranged marriages. You see, with an arranged marriage, you make a vow based upon your family's name to stay married to somebody, like Abigail does. I mean, she could have let him die. She would have owned all the wealth, but she doesn't. She runs to David, and she bows low and takes responsibility for it. She actually says that his name, by the way, which means foolish, represents him well. Whereas Nabal is an angry, foolish, self-absorbed man, Abigail is humble, responsible, and kind, even taking responsibility for her husband's foolishness. I'm going to add wise to that. Listen to what she says. Verse 26. My Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be cursed as Nabal is. And here is, a, here is a present that I, your servant, had brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you. Who's she talking about? So, Side note, and I'll come back to this text in a moment. But we now know that Nabal, who says, who is this man? And then goes on to explain that he's the son of Jesse and he's a runaway servant. They obviously know a lot about David. And his wife, who's also been watching the whole thing, believes that he is serving the Most High God. So you have a husband and wife who are on opposite, sins, opposite ends of the political spectrum in this family. But it's interesting. They both know David. The information about this has gone throughout the kingdom. Verse 29. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you the leader of Israel, don't let this blemish be on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done the great, these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. It would have been murder for David to avenge Nabal for his lack of, of hospitality, according to Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 24, and Deuteronomy 32. That was not allowed. There was a, there was a punishment for this kind of behavior, but it wasn't death. It would have been on his record forever. And Abigail is not only protecting her family and her own life, but she's actually more seems to be protecting David by acknowledging that this man is a fool, this man I'm married to. And I want you to understand again that even if he would have died, if she doesn't have sons, which, by the way, seems to be the case here because the servant goes to the mom or to Abigail, the wife, and not to the son. Remember, it's a patriarchal male-dominated culture. They could have gone to the son to take care of this, but they don't. They go to the wife. And she takes care of business, not involving her kids at all. This is a very, very unique story. And what does she do? She actually humbles herself and makes, uh, tries to protect David from putting a scar on his future. It's an amazing story. Abigail acknowledges that David is under God's divine protection. And I love the vision in this, that God is even holding David in his treasure pouch. You see, <clears throat> she is actually telling David a truth that's the foundation of the covenant that God made with the Hebrews of Mount Sinai that we know as the Mosaic Covenant. That is, I, your God, 
will protect you. I will provide for you. And I will avenge those who hurt you. Remember, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. He's actually, she's actually, without directly saying, and I'm not saying theologically she understands this, I'm simply saying that her godly view is, David, God will avenge this. Don't take it in your own hands. She is protecting this man of God, this next king of Israel, from sinning against the Most High. She's protecting him from having this blemish on his, on his record. She is so convinced of the sovereignty of God. Okay? Um, I want to I add a note. It is one thing for us to gather every week and believe that God is sovereign and agree to that and sing songs that Chad leads us in or writes about it. It is a thing to throw verses at each other, but to actually live that you believe God is in control is a total different animal. And I want to refer you back to the political climate in this country. It is alarming to see the number of young people today who don't have a problem with Marxism. It is alarming to see the number of people that uh, that are hateful towards people who don't believe that homosexuality is an immoral question, but have no problem with Christians being slaughtered all over the Middle East and say nothing in their behalf. It is a strange time in which we live, and it is easy if you watch too much news to panic or freak out or get downright angry like David. I remind you of the same thing that Abigail said to David. If you are his child and we are his children, then we are his anointed people. We have been called. We are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus, every one of us who are his children. And because of that, because of that, he will protect us for the day of our service. He will protect us for the task that he has called us. And none of us know what that task is. None of us know. But he will protect you in his treasure pouch. You are his property, my friends. David is God's property. And although David... Because of the decisions that he has to make day in and day out for these 600 people, plus their wives and children, because of the decisions he has to make, he is inclined to forget that God is in control. He is inclined to begin to believe that he has to make sure that he maintains a healthy fear. So this never happens again. And we as the body of Christ have to remember that we do not fight as the, like the world. We fight with spiritual weapons against the ideologies and lies of the evil one. If we march on Mexico, if we, if we march on Washington, D.C., in the same behavioral way that the lost do, we are proclaiming that we don't believe in God. You should vote, and then you should go to dinner. Because God is still on the throne. And I get as scared and frustrated and angry as you do about junk going on, stupid stuff that is said. But when we start acting uncivilly to people, when we do not act out the sanctity of life that extends beyond an unborn child or a senior who maybe has a disease, when we start acting out uncivilly and treating people like they are less, even if they are from Hollywood, we are proclaiming that they have no worth. They will know we are Christians by our hope by our peace, by the fruit of the Spirit, by believing in God. Abigail is a super stud in this story. Ladies, you want a biblical hero, this is what that looks like. You want to see what it looks like to be a woman of God in a male-dominated culture? I'm sorry, I don't think it's ever going to change. So we should fight for it. Okay, let's, let's march on it. But let me just say this. 
Do you know when the battle of the sexes began? Genesis 3.16. When God said, you will desire for your husband, it's a Hebrew word for power struggle, but he will rule over you. That's when it began. And why? Because he stood there and watched her eat the fruit. He should have said, God put me in charge. He told me not to eat that fruit. We're not going to eat the fruit, Eve. We're not going to eat the fruit. I'm going to be mad. That's okay. I'm going to knock the fruit. I know, I know I'm generalizing and I'm going to be called a sexist and this is going to be on TV when I run for president. I just want you to know I, I decline the invitation to be president of this country because it'll keep you from speaking truth. The truth is that our hope and our strength and our, 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 our future, our ministry does not depend on our ability to tell the other person off. It depends on our ability to trust in God. Do you know what the most dangerous thing to people is? Somebody with peace. Have you ever met somebody who's just not upset about something that upsets you like crazy? It drives you nuts. Doesn't this bother you? Sure it does. Well, aren't you going to do something? Yes, I am. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to pray. <sighs> what good's that going to do? Oh, anyway, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, we really, really act like that. You, you know, how we act really tells what we believe. You know that, right? I mean, we can proclaim things all day, and I am speaking out of my gut here because I'm so sick of the stuff I keep telling myself I'm going to get off Twitter and I'm going to, I'm going to not watch Fox News for another two weeks and then, and then I'm, I'm, I'll take a break tomorrow. I turn it back on. It's like a drug. It makes me so mad. I just want somebody on TV to speak truth and it makes me so crazy and now I'm going, man, Mark, you don't really trust him for what's going to happen. Yeah, but if, if I don't fight hard, this country could go so socialist. Okay. The good news is I can stop it, Right? I mean, I want you to understand that when you accepted Christ, you just didn't get a ticket out of hell. hell. You actually got a ticket for hope. And that hope is that God is going to make everything right soon enough. And I respect, I respect your right to be on the left, the left politically and the right. But you have no right as a child of God to speak down to each other and lack of value. It's, it's wrong. It's sin. And it's what David does here. He loses his head, and he starts taking things in control. And we can sit here all day and defend him. I could spend the next 30 minutes telling you why he had every right to lose his head and frustration. He's having a hard life, and that's fine. But we're called to a higher life, you guys. Well, David wasn't filled with the Spirit. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. When Samuel laid his hands on him and he was anointed, he had the Holy Spirit. But boy, isn't that our battle? You see, our battle is not with heaven and hell anymore. Our battle is for control of our skin, isn't it? Right, everybody? I really need you to agree with me here because I can't tell if I've ticked half of you off because I'm going to dig deeper if I have. I want you to understand that I'm not standing up here as a political character. There is no politics in this place. This is, this is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, and we are not Republicans and Democrats or socialists or Marxists or, or whatever or libertarians. We are the children of the Most High God, and He is our hope. He is our hope. Not Ben Shapiro or Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi or whoever you're following. Our hope is Jesus Christ. I want to go farther than that. Louis Giglio is not your hope. Beth Moore is not your hope. Mark Wilkie is not your hope. I know I threw that in there for my ego. But it's, we're not your hope. Your husband is not your hope. Your wife is not your hope. Your children are not the great hope of the future. Jesus Christ is the hope. And I know... I know. I, I, I make that laughter because I, 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 just wanna, I just want you to listen. We all know that. We all say that. 
We all clap for that. We, this week, was it Chris Pratt? Is he the actor? The guy, I mean, it was awesome to hear him get up in front of the awards and say, you know what, there is a God. We are sinners and we need Jesus. But people have to respond and we clap for that. But I want you to know, if the only person saying it is Chris Pratt or somebody out there, then our people in Lovekin aren't hearing hope. You see, God didn't call us to change Washington, D.C. He called us to impact Angelina County. That's who he called us to minister. And it starts with our kids. And it starts with our spouses. This is a perfect example. You've got a crazy husband and a wife who depends on God going, we're going to trust the Lord and trying to right those wrongs. We have to follow God. We have to not just find our hope in Him, but when our head tells us that we're being treated unfairly and I'll be darned if I let it, we've got to remember that God is on the throne. I'm going to put one caveat on there. We also need to respect our governing authorities, and one of the things we've been allowed to do is be involved in the political process. There's no excuse for a Christian not to be involved in the process. You can never speak about it again unless you vote this year. You've got to vote. Oh, Harry, he's getting political. I'm not. But too many people are griping without being active. And marching, I, I don't, everybody's marching down on the border right now to take a stand. Doesn't matter what the stand is. It seems like it's crazy on every side. You want to make a difference, spend some time studying, vote, and then go on with your life. But you can't not be involved and complain. Actually, you can. It makes you silly. So there's my political message for the year. So why do I do it now? Because you've got to be prepared to vote. I think that the Kennedys usually set up a voting thing. Are you guys going to do that this year? You need to do that. You need to be involved. Family, you need to be involved. I didn't think you were political. Look, we're instructed in Scripture to pray for our governing authorities. We're also instructed to pay our taxes. We're also instructed to be involved because as the, as the country is at peace, we get to live in peace. I, I implore you, be involved. Don't be stupid. That, that, that's going to be the thing. Don't be stupid, be involved. You know what I mean by those two? Everybody or do I need to go farther on this? Because I really want to get back to David. All right, getting back to David. Putting my glasses on, I must be serious. What an amazing, godly woman Abigail is. What an amazing, godly woman. There may not be a book named after or even the details of her life before this event, but behind her faithfulness in God and her trust is the courage to mediate between her foolish husband and a mad warrior. You realize he could have cut her head off, right? And buried her right there. And all the people with her. That's what he was going to do. If you think David is this little mamby-pamby dude who just killed the bad guys, he killed the bad guys, he killed their children, and he killed their wives. You need to go back and read. This was an incredibly violent place. And they killed the whole family so another son wouldn't rise up and take him on. And this woman had God courage to approach this guy at the road, fall on her face and say, Sir, stop. Her life was hard. Her life was hard. Listen to what happens after this event. Verse 36. When Abigail arrives home, she finds that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk. So she didn't tell him about anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. Some of you ladies this morning are going, that's my life. I'm sorry. 
I know. Stay the course. God's got this. Unless you're being abused, get out. I have been, I have been shyly saying that for 30 years. But if you are a man in a marriage where your wife is abusing you, and I mean abusing you, and it happens a lot more than you think because they tell me in the secrecy of my office. There's a point at which it gets confronted and ended. It is not your obligation before God to stay in a marriage where you are being beat up. It's not good for you or your kids or the kingdom. Some of you are probably mad that I would say that God hates divorce. I agree with that. Just give as you leave. This is a safe place for people who are abused. But if you use that as an excuse for your own sinful behavior, I warn you, God will avenge that lie. And his church will be made aware of it. Too much in the name of theology has allowed us to mistreat people. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. Agreed? She's amazing. So she goes back, he's drunk, so she waits the next day. You know what she's doing is she's manipulating it just like many of you have. Not just women, but men as well. In the morning when, when he was sober, his wife told him what had happened. You think God's in control? Watch this. As a result, he has a stroke. He lays paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. Wow. Why doesn't something like that happen today? It does. You just don't know about it. God was in control of Abigail's life too, not just David's. He was going to be the king, but, well, watch what happens. Verse 39, when David heard that he was dead, yes, I'm skipping his name because I pronounce it different every time. He said, praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from this guy and kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. <laughs> um getting ahead of myself, but that's what it looks like to be a wise man. Surround yourself with people that are courageous enough to tell you the truth, right? When the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. She bowed low to the ground and responded, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would be willing to become a slave, washing the feet of even his servants. Quickly, getting ready, she took five of her servant girls as attendants. Why is this detailed? because it tells us just how rich they were, very rich. She took five of her servant girls as attendants, mounted her donkey, and went with David's messengers. And so she became his wife. David also married a weird-naming person from Jezreel, making both of them his wives. Saul, meanwhile, had given his daughter Michael, remember his first wife, given her uh, to a man from Galim named Palti, son of Laish. <laughs> Some of you are going to email me and ask me to explain why he was allowed to have more than one wife. I don't know. So now you don't have to email me. What a story. This is a great story, you guys. I mean, this is a great story. It's not like the story of Jesus dying on the cross or David slaying Goliath. But I want you to know that this is a great story because this is a true story. This is a real story, and it looks like anybody in their car this afternoon that gets cut off in traffic. How dare you do that to me? Do you know I am driving a brand new Yugo? 
This is a Russian-made car, and if you dent it, it's going, to, it's going to the trash heap. Whatever, we get so mad. How dare you? Do you realize that I am paying $2.75 at Applebee's for this tea? I should have at least 13 glasses. We are so full of self-righteousness that we act like David all the time. And then God sends an Abigail. Probably the least of all the people you can expect to confront his sin. And in all this, do you know why this is in here? To show us what it looks like to be a man after God's heart? Look at what David wrote in Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. If they correct me, it's, smoothing, it's soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. But I pray constantly against the wicked in their deeds. I love the middle of that. If they correct me. It's a soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. David is a man after God's own heart, not because he never messed up, because he messed up worse than anybody in this room. We'll get there. But because David had a humble, teachable, and listening heart. Godly, wise men and women know they aren't perfect, and they humbly accept, even seek, the correction of, godly, of the godly with whom they choose to walk. So there's three things as I wrap up that I want you to get out of this today. So much, so much application I could make. We could talk about immigration. We could talk about the way we treat people. We could talk about being a godly wife. We could talk about being a better husband. All these things. But there are three that I narrowed it down to that I want to encourage you with this morning. Number one, do not blindly follow anyone but God. There'd be a, this is a good time for a yeehaw or an amen or yeah. That's right. That's a good reminder. Because even David, even David got stupid here. Follow God. And I want to I, I take this opportunity to put a side note in here. There's nothing like the local church. There are some of you who have written me on the Internet, and you let me know that you are part of Rick Warren's church, but you live in Louisiana. Or that you go to church with us but you live in Ohio. That's not church. That's preaching. You don't know me or Rick Warren unless you know us. You see us walking in the mall, Julie and I holding hands, me pushing Zach or Anna. You got to see all of it. You got to watch when I take up two parking spaces and go, why does my pastor do that? You need to see me walk in and out of a movie theater you need to watch that. Why? Because it will remind you that I may or may not be good at preaching, but God's the one you've got to follow, right? When you take somebody over there, Billy Graham, whoever, fill in the blank of your spiritual hero. The reason they're e it's easy to make them your spiritual hero, the reason you wish that they were your pastor is because you do not know them. It just is what it is. There's nothing like the body of Christ that builds each other up and there's going to be Davids and there's going to be Abigails, but unless you talk to them and know them, there's, going to be, there's not going to be that. This is a give and take. There's nothing like the local church. You need to find one that teaches the word and be involved in it. Don't blindly follow anybody but God. The second one, the point that I want to make is James 1.19. You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. David doesn't follow that and he loses his head. To actually do this, though, you must understand what Abigail says to David. 
that he, you are protected by God for your task, and he will keep you, and nobody can stop you from accomplishing that. And you are protected by God for that task. As you're being protected, you live as his treasure in his treasure pouch. You're precious to him. And when it's done, he'll take you home. When it's over, you'll go home. The third thing is you've got to be wise enough. We must be wise enough to surround ourselves with wise counsel. Not people who are willing, who agree with us on everything or always willing to tell us how wonderful we are, but wise, uh, wise counsel who are willing to tell us when we're being stupid. Proverbs 12, 15. Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. This is a great story. So much that you're going to carry out of here because of this story. But I encourage you to not just be a hearer of God's word. Be a doer. Be a doer. Realize you can't worship a man or a woman that you respect. You can support them. You can pray for them. You can listen to them and learn from them, but they're just people. Worship the master alone. Seek wise counsel. Surround yourself with godly people that will tell you the truth. Not 15, not 10, not 50, not a whole church. Jesus chose three. How many do you have? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for the example of David that we all wish we could aspire to, his faithfulness, his courage, but today we saw his flesh. Thank you for Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, but also in the middle of all that, in Romans writes, why do I keep doing the things that I hate, things that I know are wrong? The more I want to do what's right, I seem to do the wrong. Thank you for his honesty. So I ask you not to make us like David or Paul. I actually ask you to make us like you. And while we live down here, Make us like Abigail. Make us a woman of, uh, like this woman of courage. Make us like this woman who is, who is willing to risk her life to speak truth to this king that she wanted to protect. Make us humble, where despite being associated with fools, we represent righteousness. Lord Jesus, I ask you to protect us from our flesh as you have protected us from its consequences. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in about five minutes. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, I'd love to shake your hand. Have a great day.